All right, so I just had a conversation with Monish Pabrai. He is the founder of Pabrai Funds, which is a large investment fund, which was inspired by Warren Buffett and his investment partnership from the 1950s. He's a really interesting guy, very humble, a great investor, and personally, I've learned a lot from him. So it was awesome to be able to share this recording with everybody who's about to listen to it. We talked about everything from how did he think about starting his company when he was younger? Why did he pay over half a million bucks to eat lunch with Warren Buffett? what he's learned from Buffett and Charlie Munger, both in investing and life, spent time talking about circle of competence, how to think about it, how to expand it, which is something that's been on my mind a lot recently. How does he think about the current market? How did he approach the bull markets and the euphoria of the past couple of years? Um, and quite a bit more. So overall, it was an awesome conversation and I hope you all enjoy it. For, for me and people in my generation, like a lot of us that had Indian uh, immigrant parents, came to the U.S., everyone had a pretty unique story, like came here with a few dollars in their pocket, barely spoke English, but somehow, you know, ended up where they needed to be. Uh, I wonder if you have like any interesting nuggets or anything from your journey coming, you know, to the U.S. Well, I, I think I I had a great start because uh, I, I came as a undergrad student. And uh, uh, thankfully, at the time, my parents were able to afford uh, uh, to pay the fees and so on because I couldn't work and wasn't eligible for a lot of uh, financial aid and so on. And uh, so that helped me uh, get a good uh, engineering degree. And then, you know, once I had that, then I could uh, I could get a job and kind of get going from there. So it, it I think, worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the way I understand it is you kind of worked for five years at a company and then you ultimately decided to start your own. Um, and I know you took on, uh, you know, stuff out of your 401k and some credit card debt. Why ultimately did you start that business? Like what was the you know thing that kind of pushed you over the edge to go do that? Yeah, so uh, I think the, the, reason, uh, the reason I started was uh, my, uh, my dad actually gave me a nudge. He was visiting me uh, at the time. And uh, he, he told me, uh, you know, it's uh, time to quit and do your own thing. And uh, I actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, my father was an entrepreneur throughout his life. And he had started, grown, bankrupted uh, a number of companies. And I had seen a very wild roller coaster ride while I was growing up because my parents were very poor financial planners. So when the business went under, which would happen every two or three years, uh, they wouldn't have money for rent or groceries or anything. So it was a feast or famine. And um, so I told my dad, look, you know, I've got a very good job, 15% going into the 401k employer match. And uh, this is going to keep, uh, you know, increasing over time and so on. And, uh, you know, lots of financial stability and so on and so forth. And, uh, I really don't want to go down. I said, you know, have you forgotten, you know, all the ups and downs we had? And his perspective was, well, that's what makes life interesting. And um, and uh, what was happening at the time is that uh, the the company I had I was working for, you know, about three years ago, I had joined their international division, which had about eight people when I joined them, and uh, now they had about eight hundred people. They bought a couple of companies. And so what used to be kind of the Wild West 
was getting more and more bureaucratic and my job description had narrowed down quite a bit. I liked the Wild West uh, a lot better. And, um, and I was seeing opportunities uh, where uh, an entrepreneur could do well. And, uh, and so there was some frustration on the professional side. Uh, my dad was kind of pushing me. I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try. And I said, okay, you know, if it doesn't work, uh, I'll go back. I can go back to corporate life, and and that should be fine. So that's yeah. why I went down that path. I see. And did you think about it in that risk adjusted way? Like I know in the Dondo Investor, you have the chapter on like heads I win, tails I don't lose too big. Uh, was it kind of like that? Like, look, I can go try this thing, and if it doesn't work, I can go back to a great job, anyways. Yeah. So actually, I, you know, I think there's a big misnomer. Uh, people think that entrepreneurs take risk. And uh, actually, entrepreneurs do everything they can to minimize risk. And uh, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to go low risk, high return. And um, they, don't, they don't typically go high risk, high return. And I'm, I'm talking about non-venture-backed startups, which is probably 99.9% .9 of startups. And, uh, and so uh, basically in my case, uh, I, had, uh, I had taken about $30,000 out of my 401k account. I mean, I was 24 years old. I wasn't concerned about retirement at that time. And, uh, and I also took on eventually about $70,000 in credit card debt to get the business going. And at that time in uh, 91, I had researched uh, US bankruptcy law personal bankruptcy law. And um, they've changed those laws since then. But at that time, uh, the way it worked is that if my business went under, uh, you know, I was always thinking of oh, the worst case, what happens if the business goes under? Well, I would lose the 30,000 from the 401k, which is fine. Uh, the 70,000 70, credit card debt would actually get wiped out in bankruptcy. And uh, what, what would have happened if that happened is that um, once you declare personal bankruptcy in the 1990s, you can't declare again for seven years. So actually what happens is you become a really good credit risk um, because the lenders know that it can't happen again for a while. So um, they've changed some of those laws now. So basically the way I looked at it, I said, okay, if it doesn't work, uh, I know I can get a job. I know I'll be wiped out, but there isn't much to wipe out because I don't have too much in assets to begin with. I wasn't married at the time, and I knew that uh, later in life it would be harder with uh, a wife and kids and so on. And so I felt it was almost like a kind of a free moonshot. Um, and uh, so I said, okay, I'll give it a, give it a shot and uh, give it a solid shot. If it doesn't work... Um, I'll go back. And actually, the funny thing is that when I resigned, um, my boss and his boss, you know, I told them I was leaving to start my own company. It was not competitive with my employer. And uh, so they, they said, look, um, uh, we would love to have you back when your business fails. Not if your business fails, when your business fails. And we're going to give you a promotion and we're going to give you more money. So I thought it was even better than what I had planned because I thought it would it might take me two, three months to get a job. I said, this is great. I can like in five minutes come back and actually I have a better career path. 
than I'm on right now. So it was actually really good. And uh, so, yeah, it was classic dhando in the sense that uh, there wasn't much downside. And uh, later I discovered that the way I was thinking about doing this was actually the way uh, most uh, non-venture-backed startups uh, think about it. They always try to kind of scrounge and uh, minimize risk and so on and so forth. And uh, there's a book uh, written by a guy named Amar Bhide, uh, The Origin and Evolution of New Businesses, where he's interviewed 10 years of Inc. 500 CEOs. And then he took all those interviews and converted it into a framework of how people think about things when they start businesses. And um, when I looked, when I read that book, it was like an echo of my story. Uh, you know, it almost felt like these people were copying what I had done and none of these people had interacted with each other, but they all followed the same kind of blueprint. And uh, so that's, that is the way that uh, most businesses get going. They, uh, people always cannot try to keep their job going till the business gets some traction, which is what I did for about nine months. And then once it had enough traction, then I quit my job and then I was able to grow and scale it from there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Human nature is like relatively consistent in how people approach things. Um, but, you know, ultimately, obviously, everything worked out. There wasn't a failure of the business. You ultimately sold that business for a pretty decently sized exit, started Pabrai Funds. Um, if I understand it correctly, like Pabrai Funds or the original partnership was kind of like a side hobby for you, but then it ultimately transitioned into something that was, you know, a serious uh, venture. How did that transition actually work from being something that was, you know, you were interested in to, okay, this is what I'm going to go do? Yeah, so I actually never really thought I would um, go into the investment business. So I had studied Buffett and his approach to investing, and I'd done really well with that approach. So in 94, a small portion of my company got sold. And after taxes and everything, I had about a million dollars. And I really, it's the first time I had money in my account. Um, and uh, I really didn't have a need for it. So I said, okay, I'm going to, take this million and apply Buffett's approach and see what happens. And um, in the next five or six years, that million became about 13 million and uh, like north of 70% a year. So it had done really well, which I said, okay, that's good. This works. And um, so I was more interested in just becoming a, an investor, you know, with my own capital and uh, not really looking as a fund or anything. And I had friends who I used to give stock tips to, you know, once I bought something, I'd tell them, you know, you could go buy this and uh, it's probably a good, and they had done really well as well. So they approached me as a group and said, look, you know, this stock tip business is pretty random. We don't see you for a while. And, uh, you know, sometimes we have a, you know, a million dollars to invest and I put 10,000 into something you tell me about and it doubles or triples, but it doesn't do much for my net worth, you know, that sort of thing. So what they, they said is, can you run a pool of capital for us friends? And, uh, and that way, you know, we don't, we don't have to be in the stock tip business or whatever. So I thought about it and I really didn't want to kind of lose money for them and not, you know, I, I was very concerned about making sure that those friendships stayed no matter what happened. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll set up like a formal fund structure 
just so that there's a proper you know agreement between us and so on and i like the buffett partnership rules of the 1950s where there was no fees he charged uh, one fourth of the performance over 6% a year so it was kind of win win for him and his investors so i i told them i would apply those rules and they didn't particularly care they said whatever and um, so it started with 1 million dollars from age investors and uh, i think a year later we had about 2 and 1/2 million for like from 13 or 14 investor then i really wasn't looking to scale or grow it but in the meantime i my it business got sold and i said you know uh, it might be fun to actually build this as a real business and not treat it as a hobby um because i was uh enjoying the process of being full time and enjoying the process and it really was no additional work if i was managing 10 million or 50 million or 100 million there would be no additional work in terms of the investment research and uh, so uh, so i said okay uh let me actually you know really think about this as a real business and try to grow and scale it and and that's what happened that's what we did from then on then yeah uh did like the mental side of it or the psychology change at all when it was okay i'm not just managing my own money but now friends capital as well i didn't i didn't really feel any difference uh because i was pretty much investing the way i would invest my own money so this was not very institutional you know i'm not kind of you know trying to raise assets i just was running things in a manner that made sense to me and uh, and basically uh yeah i never felt any kind of pressure or you know anything different than running my own capital and and uh, pretty soon with the fees etc i was the largest investor anyway so uh so you know a lot of my incentive was coming from the ownership in the funds uh as opposed to you know management fees or incentive fees and so on right right and um you kind of mentioned you know buffett munger and how you took inspiration from them and in starting the fund and kind of structuring certain things in the in the uh the partnership um obviously there's that uh you know famous uh lunch that you paid uh like 650 grand for to go attend uh when you did that how were you thinking about it was it like look i'm going to pay because i want to uh start a relationship with buffett learn from him get to know him more or what was kind of the reason for paying and you know going to the lunch with him well at at that time in 2007 um i think my net worth at that time was 80 odd million and uh a huge portion of it almost all of it was coming from you know me leveraging buffett buffett's intellectual property you know it's public domain but basically uh, i was using uh, his approach and munger's approach and graham's approach and so on and i felt like there was like a tuition bill due you know i i just felt like uh, uh you know i'm you know kind of leveraging all this stuff that this guy has put on the public domain and warren was running these annual charity lunch auctions and i said okay you know uh i i think it'd be great to win the auction and just be able to thank him in person and the amount it would kind of cost 
to to win the auction it was going to a good cause it was going to a uh, a homeless shelter uh, in san francisco um uh, you know the that movie the pursuit of happiness with will smith um uh, that shelter where he actually is taken in is the one that uh, offered supports and um and so basically it was a good cause and uh, i said okay uh, i didn't really have any agenda i didn't expect to have any relationship with warren i just wanted to look him in the eye and say uh, warren thank you thank you so much for i've you know my life has been financially enhanced because of you but besides that a lot of his principles on how to lead a great life etc those have also been wonderful so i just wanted to just meet him thank him support a cause that he supports and kind of like pay the tuition bill that's what i was trying to do and i felt like uh something like uh you know i thought about like a 2 million dollar uh payment for tuition at that time uh was affordable and uh acceptable so i said okay i'll i'll bid up to 2 million and see if it works i had bid for the lunch uh two or three years in a row but i always lost uh because my 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 uh max wasn't that high and um and uh but then this year in 2007 i i uh, said okay we have a we have a a good shot at winning it uh because the previous year it had gone for like 250000 and uh and actually it didn't get to 2 million at 650000 we won the lunch which is great yeah yeah uh that's a great way to think about it i guess i feel like a lot of us have went to kind of you know buffett and munger university and uh it's really like improved not only the quality of how we think about business but our lives as well so uh you know paying the tuition is probably a pretty good way to think about it um over time you've gotten to know them and i'm obviously you've learned a lot from them i'm just curious like how have you learned about how they kind of structure their days any particular habits that you've really learned from them and kind of you know ingrained in your own life or implemented Yeah so actually you know like i said i didn't have any agenda for the lunch uh buffet has a very different agenda at these lunches uh and you know this year was the last year that they auctioned it off and uh, this year it went for more than 19 million so i feel like i got a good deal um uh basically uh his his objective is to make sure that whoever won the lunch feels like they got a bargain and uh, so he's trying to uh add as much value as he can uh during the lunch uh, so like he he told us i'd gone with my family and i'd gone with my friend guy spear and his wife so he told us when we sat down for lunch in new york that listen i have the entire afternoon free and i don't have any any other engagement so i am here for as long as you need me and whenever you get tired of me let's let me know and i'll leave so first thing is he never set a time limit on the lunch and like i just want to like you know contrast it like i had i think another prominent ceo of a tech company i had someone invited me to a lunch with them like there was a charity lunch somebody else paid for and that was in the in the cafeteria uh of that company and the guy had 45 minutes you know and he's like so it was very different i mean he really wasn't 
thinking about the way Warren did. Uh, and so the Warren, the Warren lunch actually went for about three hours and we pretty much ran out of questions after that. So <laughs> we told him we'll take some pictures and then he was on his way. Uh, but basically what, uh, what he was doing is any question we would ask him, he was trying to convert it into a learning opportunity. And uh, so he, he, he tried to give us as many life lessons and investing lessons as he could. And, you know, with Buffett and Munger, they're so much in the public domain uh, about them that uh, I think the best way to learn about them is just look at all the stuff that's already out there about them. Uh, but he still added a good, good amount of value because it's important to see what he really emphasized, what was really important to him, what were kind of core traits. And uh, yeah, so regarding, I think, in terms of how they live their lives, you know, one of the things that uh, both these guys do is they run almost an empty calendar. Um, so Buffett hardly schedules anything on his calendar. It's uh, almost completely empty. Um, he likes the flexibility. And I think that's a, you know, I learned that from him and I've tried to uh, keep my calendar similar uh, where, you know, I, I try to uh, uh, basically keep it simple and uh, not, not clutter it too much. Um, they like to spend their time reading and thinking and uh, that's another thing I learned from them and I try to do that as well. So, yeah, I think it's a good idea to study basically their habits of how they go about their day. That's a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And then seemingly one of the things, um, you know, that I'm sure you and a lot of us have learned have just kind of been like circle of competence. Um, when I look at like what you've invested in, it seems like, um, you know, it's global. Uh, it's like oil businesses and all different types of things. I'm just curious, like, how do you define your circle of competence? Well, I think the, uh, you know, like Munger would say, to ask the question is to answer it. Uh, if you question whether some business or industry is in your circle of competence, the answer is it is not in your circle of competence. So um, if you look at a business and or a company and uh, and it's obvious to you, you know, how they make money, how the business works, what are the factors that affect it the most and what are the leverage points and all of that, that's really where circle of competence comes in. And uh, so most of us start out with a very narrow circle of competence because, you know, obviously we don't come on earth knowing too many things. And uh, by osmosis, in general, it's going to expand over time. But actually the size of the circle is quite irrelevant. Uh, so one could have a really tiny circle of competence and do really well. The important thing is to stay dead center, uh, stay well within, well within the circle and not you know, wander to the edges or beyond the edges. Uh, those are fatal mistakes. So I think that one needs to, it's an, a kind of exercise in humility and an exercise in candor with yourself that if you're, if you're looking at uh, something, I mean, in my investing career, when I look back, I have had my head handed to me multiple times uh, investing in leveraged financial institutions, banks, lenders, and so on. 
and what i what i learned after you know a lot of pretty heavy losses over the years is i'm just never going there again so if i look at a if you look at a, any typical bank for example it's a pretty straightforward business you know it's not a complicated business but the thing is that the loan book is a black box you don't know what's in the loan book you don't know uh exactly what underwriting criteria was used to make a particular loan and whether a lender has great lending discipline or not it can take 5 or 10 years after they've lost discipline for it to manifest itself in in their numbers and so on so basically the nature of those black boxes uh makes it difficult for someone like me and i it took me a while to understand that someone like warren buffett has an exceptionally well investing in lenders i i don't think he's ever lost money investing in a bank uh he's never made a mistake but he's lost a lot of money investing in retailers uh so when when buffett invests in retailers he had a pretty high error rate but when he invests in banks he has a very low error rate in in my case i hate retail so i try to avoid it to to start with because i think it's just a very difficult uh, area to do well in and uh and any time i see either uh, a bank or a lending institution of any kind i just say okay it's like biotech you know i don't understand anything, anything about biotech so i'm not going to make investments in biotech i don't like us healthcare because they have a lot of non market driven forces that drive outcomes uh i also don't like kind of defense contractors because it's so you know you got one customer there's a lot of politics and whatever and kind of macro factors that affect that so there's entire kind of industry codes or industries that i'm not interested in in for a variety of reasons and i just put banks and financial institutions in that list and move on yeah yeah so it's like okay i've kind of coalesced around certain industries or regions that i like that i understand there's other ones that i understand what i don't know or what i don't like about that industry so i don't touch those and then as new things pop up though how do you kind of like expand that circle of competence and i'll give you an example of kind of why i'm asking so for me for example i would say i have a circle of competence around you know multifamily real estate in a couple specific regions you know of this specific like asset type um and then i say like okay what if i want to start go looking at retail right like is it just going around the process of reading talking to people that are in the industry making small bets or how do you think about expanding the circle of competence i think uh, i think I, it's better not to think about uh, so there's two there's two approaches you could take uh, one approach is to not bother with expanding the circle so if you have you know multi family real estate for example that's a large enough area uh, you know uh, charlie munger had a friend he passed away of couple of years back john ariega he was a multi billionaire and um, his daughter is actually ma- married to mark andreessen so they're multi billionaire to the power of multi billionaire you know so uh, but john ariega only only invested in uh real estate 
within two miles of the Stanford campus in his whole life. He never invested in anything else. And basically it was either housing or, uh, you know, commercial. He might even do shopping malls, but it had to be in that geography. And in general, I think in real estate, uh, you know, around college towns, uh, especially, you know, residential around college towns, you know, student housing, um, you know, that's how Sam Zell started. And he did really well. So, um, and Stanford is a great, I mean, that, that area is awesome. You know, you've got so much venture capital and uh, wealth and growth and all of that. And what he did was that, uh, you know, whenever things got very euphoric, uh, he got rid of the entire portfolio. I mean, when things got, you know, the cap rates went to, you know, 3% or 4% or something, he was his, you know, and his occupancy is 100% and rents are sky high and all that. He unloaded everything. And when things got depressed, he bought them back and he used leverage, but not that much. You know, so he, he always kept his leverage levels uh, pretty low. And, and he did extremely well with that approach over a long period. So he didn't go into downtown San Francisco. He didn't go, you know, across the bay. I mean, he just, he didn't go into other industries. Uh, I think if he was the kind of guy, uh, if someone talked to him about some tech business or whatever else, he would listen, but, you know, it would have no impact on him from an investing point of view. And uh, so I think that that's one approach. You know, the Ariega approach is a great approach, which is he found, I mean, and he was the kind of guy that if you walk down some street in Palo Alto, uh, he could pretty much look at any building and tell you what its situation was, when it was built and square footage and rents and <coughs> all those kinds of kinds of things. I mean, he knew it, he knew it cold. And if a deal came to him, it would take him two minutes to know whether it was a good deal or not because he knew all those properties so well. You know, just, uh, So all of those things uh, gave him a huge advantage. Uh, I think that if you were going to kind of branch out, if you will, uh, the best way to do it is to start really small. So, you know, make make a small bet. Uh, and obviously, you know, talk to people and experts and so on. But you could make a small bet and use, uh, use the time after you made the bet uh, to get your arms around it. And then you can compare. You can compare what you were doing to the one that you went into and say, okay, you know, which one is better? You know, multifamily, you understand a certain, has certain dynamics. And if you go into retail or something else, you understand that dynamic and you can kind of figure out what's going on. Um, so uh, I think I think with retail, you know, like I said, I think location is huge. You know, local knowledge is huge. And and really, depth of expertise is huge. Uh, so, I would kind of tread carefully. Um, but but you could experiment on a small scale where things don't work. It doesn't make much difference. If things do work, then you can you know gradually increase those bets. And then, just last question on circle of competence: How do you think about switching like? just industries completely like for example when 
um, you know, making a bet in an oil shipping business versus making a bet in a funeral home business, for example. Um, is it just going in and understanding the dynamics to your point, making a small bet, understanding more? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that the good thing with uh, public companies is that you have large, uh, long histories that you can look at. Um, and, you know, Buffett says uh, industries with rapid change are the enemy of the investor. Uh, so you ideally want to really invest in businesses that are very static. You know, they don't change. I mean, humans haven't changed the way we deal with our dead in thousands of years. You know, it's just, it's it's very static. You know, we're not going to come up with some new, you know, when your favorite uncle dies, you're not going to experiment with some new whiz-bang way to uh, take care of his remains. You know, you're going to try to keep it done in a very respectful you know, traditional way that he or she, he would have wanted. And, uh, and you also uh, don't take the low bid. You know, you don't call like 10 places and take the lowest bid or, you know, buy the cheapest coffin or whatever else, you know. So it's actually a business that has very favorable economics because uh, typically margins are good. Uh, we don't get a lot of Mark Zuckerberg saying, I want to like, you know, own the funeral business, you know, not too many 22 year olds are saying, I want to really kind of revolutionize this industry or anything like that. So it's protected. A lot of people don't want to go into it. It's kind of morbid and, um, and there's, it's tradition bound. So if your family has been using a particular funeral home, you're likely to keep using them and so on. So I think funeral, the funeral business is one of the easier businesses to figure out. Um, because it's it's relatively straightforward. Um, even uh, even things like oil shipping, etc. I think when you study it, it's uh, I think to get your arms around it um, isn't uh, isn't that complicated. Again, you know, like I said, these things don't change when oil is produced in Saudi Arabia and uh, needs to needs to go to China or something. Uh, there's only a certain way you can get it there. Uh, there's really no no other options, and uh, and you have like like you know at that time when I did the oil shipping business, there were like a global fleet of four hundred four hundred VLCCs, very large crude carriers, uh, and it wasn't that hard to figure out what a VLCC is and how much it costs and you know how daily rates move and all those sorts of things. So yeah, okay, got out. it. Um... And just switching gears a little bit, uh, you know, today we're in a, a relatively unique environment. Um, you've seen multiple market cycles. Just how do you think about, you know, where we're at today um, with where the market is at? Well, you know, things are beaten down and, uh, and I think beaten down uh, pretty hard, I would say. And uh, I mean, I have no crystal ball that, tells me whether we've, you know, hit a low and it's onward and upward from here or not. Uh, we have, you know, this war in Ukraine and we have uh, Russia, you know, with nuclear rhetoric and so on. So there are a range of possibilities there and some of those are pretty ugly. Uh, but uh, assuming we don't have these, you know, crazy outlier events, it it looks like a 
uh, a very good time to study equities and and uh, buy some great ones yeah how did you approach kind of like 2021 maybe end of 2020 there was a lot of like crazy things going on in the market from you know these day traders on reddit to this nft craze and all this stuff i'm sure you know you didn't touch at all but just equities were at all-time highs how did you think about and what was the activity that you were going uh through in 2021 so uh there's a there's a book uh it's a good book it's called trend watching it was written a long time ago by a, a guy who used to be a cnbc anchor uh, ron insana and what he did in that book is he chronicled bubbles for hundreds of years and when you read that book what you find is that bubbles are really common and not only are they very common they're happening all the time so they happen in different geographies and different asset classes the nature of having humans involved in buying and selling different assets and asset classes is they're going to get euphoric and they're going to get pessimistic and and when they get very euphoric you're going to get crazy pricing and when things get very pessimistic you're also going to get crazy pricing in the other direction so basically uh many times or most of the time i would say most assets are not appropriately priced usually they're somewhat underpriced or maybe somewhat overpriced they don't go to too, too too many extremes but usually they're not uh correctly priced because it's psychology driven and sentiment driven and what one guy might think it you know future looks great the other guy thinks it doesn't look so great and all of that but periodically we get uh situations in markets where things just go bananas and and then it becomes uh relatively obvious that uh oh we have a bubble so when i read the trend watching book and uh there's a few other books like that uh basically uh i i'm not surprised uh when i see crazy behavior in a particular asset class uh, i think that's just par for the course sometimes you see such crazy behavior that it's just obvious that it's an extreme bubble and it will burst at some point uh but i don't i don't particularly care of even what i think about you know whether something is a bubble or not obviously if i think if something is a bubble or not i have no i have no interest in participating um so even when the reddit stuff is happening or the you know bitcoin stuff is happening or whatever else is happening with crypto or you know the meme stocks whatever else it's really uh, irrelevant to me in the sense that i'm a you know bottoms up stock picker so i'm looking for businesses i can understand that are undervalued and so on and you know 99% of businesses either i don't understand them or uh they aren't really cheap uh or they're overpriced they all go in the same bucket which is like i'm not interested so whatever was happening to the price of amc or any of the other stocks or you know bitcoin or whatever is really from my point of view relevant if people are right about those companies and they go up a lot 
that's perfectly fine. I mean, investing is a business where there's no call strikes. So there are lots and lots of things which I don't understand or I will not invest in, which will do really well. What matters is I try to keep the error rate down on the stuff that I do invest in. So it's natural for humans to want to go with the crowd, right? And, and so when there's a lot of euphoria in a particular field, it sucks a lot of people in. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, I found it very curious that in the, in 2000, I think it was like February 2000, uh, I was living in Chicago at the time. And I remember I took a cab in downtown Chicago and this Pakistani cab driver uh, says to me in Urdu, Aapka Cisco ke baare mein kya khayal hai? You know, what are your thoughts on Cisco? And um, so when the, and you know, my degree is in computer engineering and I spent about five years in high-speed data networks. So I actually understand Cisco really well. You know, I actually used to build gear like that uh, when I got out of school and so on. But when the Pakistani cab driver is trying to get, I mean, trying to seek an opinion on something that is, I would say, quite, uh, would not be that easy to get your arms around, which is core internet infrastructure. You know, I mean, even, even now, if I think if I look at something like Cisco, I'd really have to dig in to understand it. It would take me three months or something to figure out, you know, what the prospects of Cisco are. And, um, and so when, when this guy makes a statement like that, it's like the shoeshine boy in 1929 giving you stock tips. And more recently in 2020 and 2021, it was very funny. I can't even, it was very surprising the number of Uber drivers who would unilaterally start talking to me about crypto. I mean, I got into an Uber to go from point A to point B. Okay, I'm sitting there minding my own business. And then there's a whole conversation they want to get going about crypto. And then each one has their own, you know, favorite crypto, some name I've never heard of. And they're proceeding to give me a tutorial uh, in this 15-minute cab ride on why everything I own should be in that, in that particular cryptocurrency. So to me, the, the cab driver in 2000 the Uber drivers, somehow it's, it's happening in these moving vehicles <laughs> yeah. that we're seeing. And to me, that's, that's the sign. Whatever the Uber driver is trying to pitch me to invest in, my, my take right, now is right. that's a bomb. Yeah, I think that's probably a good signal, like reflecting back on what happened. Um, but basically, kind of what you're saying is like, look, I see these crazy like circus shows going on. And effectively, my thoughts and views on it can be irrelevant because this is not something that I focus on. And so I free up my headspace for the businesses that, you know, really make sense to me. So I can just go spend my time over there. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Exactly. It's purely right. for entertainment right. purposes. Yeah. And investing is not entertainment. It's something that should be taken extremely seriously. Um, <laughs> okay. That's really good. Um, in these like kind of, you know, final five, five or so minutes we had, um, I've heard you talk a little bit about parenting and, and children and stuff like that. Um, 
Uh, one thing that you said that stood out to me was like a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the brain kind of hard coding and what we're wired for happens by about, you know, maybe five years old. Um, with that knowledge, like how did that change how you affect, uh, how you changed your parenting styles, uh, your parenting style for your kids when they were younger? Yeah, basically, I think, I think humans between their genetics and whatever takes place in the first five years of their lives, um, who they are at five or six is who they're going to be at 96. Um, um, there's really not much change in that period. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I'd lost touch with most of my classmates, uh, you know, because it was all before the internet and all when I went to high school and grade school and middle school and college and so on. But then after Facebook came up, I was able to connect with all of them. In some cases, uh, the last time I had interacted with someone was the age of 12. And the next time I was interacting with them was the age of 50. And there was no change. Or 16 to 48 or 20 to 50 or something. In all those cases, I, I, I saw the same person, you know, and it had been such a long time and they've had so much life experience and so many different kind of left and right turns they've taken, but they didn't, they, so basically the traits we have get hard coded. And in the first five years of life, uh, the brain is the fastest growing organ we have so the the birth canal is too narrow for a fully formed brain to come out and so when we are born uh, humans have a very uh, you know underdeveloped brain you know we can't we can't walk we can't talk we can't do anything you know uh, but it goes through furious uh, growth and change and i think in the first 5 years as a parent uh, you know, most parents are just so busy, with, you know, just trying to keep up because those are, those are very busy years. I think the main thing that you can do is just try to provide as normal an environment uh, for your kids at that time. You know, if they are hungry, uh, feed them. If they need to be changed, change them, you know, have decent care for them. Uh, I think that's, that's good. You really can't start imparting life lessons or anything at that age, um, but you can uh, you can try to you know avoid any you know weird uh, kind of long term psychosis or something uh, by keeping it within a reasonable band for them. Uh, but even within the five years, I think the genetics plays a, plays a huge part. Uh, so so I think I think that's just the way it is. I think it's uh, and and it's one of the things that you can take away from that is that, you know, when you meet someone and you kind of figure out, you know, who they are and what kind of person they are and so on, um, it should be pretty clear that that's not going to change. So your only choice is whether a person like that is someone you want to be close friends with or not or whatever. Uh, you're not going to be able to change that person and you're not going to be able to Tweak that person, and so their traits are hard coded. So that's it's a good mental model to have. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, okay, great. Uh, you gave us a couple book recommendations in this one, and I think, like, for myself, that's going to be awesome for me to go read books. I'm sure the people listening are, uh, you know, going to have good book recommendations. Is there, like, a book or books that you most commonly gift to, to other people? Well, I would say the the best book I've I've read, and I try to reread it every year, is Poor Charlie's Almanac. Uh, you know, uh, that was the, I mean, the book's in two parts. Uh, one part is biography on Charlie and the second part which is the the different talks he's given uh, I think the second part is more interesting and uh, and yeah that book has you know many lifetimes of wisdom and uh, and every time I read it I feel like I could swear I never read something that I'm reading at that time even though I've read it so many times and uh, a lot of take-home value and uh, it's it's very dense in terms of uh, all the lessons you can take from it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great book. I think if someone really digested poor Charlie's Almanac, it's better than most four-year college degrees. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That book, I think, changed my life. And uh, the one speech, The Psychology of Human Misjudgment, I think it's titled at yes. USC, is one of the best speeches uh, that people... Yeah, it's, a, it's a great, uh, great, great talk, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then last question is just around Dakshana Foundation. So uh, you had started that. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that. And then more broadly, how do you think about like measuring return for charitable contributions and giving back? Yeah. So actually I, uh, I lucked out with Dakshana. We ended up with a great team and uh, the results have been way above what I would have ever expected in terms of what it's been able to do. Uh Basically, I think that, uh, you know, I, I had come to the conclusion fairly early that if, if you're, you know, Buffett said to us at the lunch, he said, if, even if you're a slightly above average investor and you spend less than you earn, over a lifetime, you can't help but get rich. And uh, that's just the nature of compounding, you know, doing that for you. And so you're going to end up with more assets than you can consume. And there's only two things you can do with it. You could give it to your gene pool or you could give it back to society. And uh, large inheritances are a problem. I think they will do more harm than good to your kids. So, you know, I knew that I needed to give it back to society, but I didn't want to give it to suboptimal charities or whatever. And um, so uh, so I, I spent some time thinking about and reading about, you know, what is the frameworks that would lead to having good results in giving. And uh, so I think one of the things that's different about charitable giving is that it needs to be even more concentrated than investing. So if you're trying to invest, it's very rare to have more than, you know, two or three good ideas in two or three years. You know, maybe a couple ideas a year is what you're going to be able to do. And in charitable giving, I think if you can get one good idea, even in 10 years, uh, that's great because uh, there's very few uh, great charities. And so when you find a great charity, you go all in. You know, just, you know, you don't need to sprinkle amongst 10 charities. Just find the best one. And, and if you're doing it annually, you can see how they did and kind of take it from there. So the difficulty with charitable giving is that most giving that is probably even doing a lot of good 
is very hard to measure. You know, the outcome measurement is really difficult. Uh, so a lot of programs which, uh, when you look at them, you can say, yeah, I think this program is a good program. Uh, I mean, let's say you have a large homeless population in a city and you de decide to open a soup kitchen and, uh, and provide, you know, nutritious, warm meals, you know, a couple of times a day to all comers, okay? That's a very noble undertaking, okay? How do you compare that to going into an inner city school and improving student test scores and student outcomes? So if both endeavors were to cost, you know, a couple of million dollars a year, which endeavor is better? And that becomes really complicated. So I think because these outcomes are difficult to measure, um, what I did is I inverted the problem. So I said, I'm only going to go look at things where measurement is easy, uh, which kind of wiped out 98% of what might be effective giving. But without having measurements, you're kind of flying blind. So when you start a business, uh, there's a feedback loop. So let's say I start a Chinese restaurant or a Chinese couple starts a Chinese restaurant. If they make great food and provide great service and have a great location and have great help and all of that, they may do well, okay? And they may have decent sales and decent profits. And it's the profits that enable them to stay in business. If the food is useless or the chef is useless or the service is useless or the location's useless or there's too much competition, eventually they'll go out of business. And so the feedback loop makes sure that all the riffraff businesses basically disappear. And what you're left with are decent good businesses, you know, that actually are providing value. In, in charitable giving, that's not the case. So if, if I'm the Rockefeller Foundation and I have you know $10 billion and I spend 5% of that every year, 500 million a year, um, I could torch the 500 million. And because the other nine and a half billion is invested somewhere and probably makes more than 5%, a year later, I have 10 billion again. So whether that 500 million delivers any value or not, the Rockefeller Foundation will exist forever. Whereas the Chinese restaurant will not. So in capitalism, we have automatic feedback loops that will take out the poor performers. In charitable giving, we don't have that. Uh, because basically, you, you know, someone sets up an endowment and then you keep giving 5%. Uh, you know, Harvard, I don't know, Harvard is I think like 60 billion or something uh, endowment, and they probably spend like 3 billion a year or something. We don't, it doesn't matter how well or poorly the 3 billion is spent. You know, Harvard will be around. And the year, next year they'll have more than 60 billion because they'll make more than 5% and people will give them money. So it'll go, go on forever. And uh, so, what we have to do in charitable giving is we have to set up artificial feedback loops. And so basically the first, first uh, uh, rule is do not support anything that cannot be measured objectively. And the second is do the measurements in an objective manner 
so that you can measure the impact on society and compare it to other causes that you could give to where measurements are easy and then continue to give it to the best of those causes and try to expand those. And that's probably the best way to do this. But almost all charities, you know, they're run by people with great hearts, uh, not necessarily great heads. And certainly not, you know, they haven't typically come from a capital allocation investing background. And so all of this stuff is kind of alien for them. And uh, so we end up with charities which have very noble missions, but you can't really, uh, when you look at the outcomes, uh, you either scratching your head or you're saying, well, it doesn't appear to be the best place that you know, one could put those resources. So, so I think charitable giving is much harder because you have to set up artificial feedback loops. Um, the poor performers never go out of business. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, so, and the other, the other sad part is that in society, we have lots of very tough problems. And, uh, you know, climate change, homelessness, uh, education, healthcare, obesity, there's so many problems. And, and the thing is that uh, um, they, they need significant brain power and significant resources to make a dent. So clearly the opportunity to do well is there because there's a big number of problems that are not solved yet. Uh, but it, it requires kind of different thinking to get there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, well, I know you have a couple of ways for people to kind of, um, you know, see everything you're up to, the YouTube channel, Chai with Pabrai, uh, your Twitter account. Uh, is there anything else that um, people should kind of check out or be directed to, to to learn more? I think those are good. God, Google will take you where you need to go. So that's okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, well, again, thanks so much for taking the time and, uh, you know, uh, sharing a lot of your wisdom with us. Really appreciate it. Rohan, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.